Well, please join me now in 2 Peter. 2 Peter, it was just two weeks ago that we wrapped up our long walk through 1 Peter, and now we come to 2 Peter, and we're going to be considering together how the grace of God in our lives is nothing short of life transforming. We're even going to see that truth in the introduction as Peter begins to write this letter. I don't know if you're like me or not, but when it comes to doing introductions, I sometimes get nervous in that moment, especially if I'm in a group of new people. For me, it's typically in some gathering of pastors. And there's that moment where somebody says, hey, let's go around the circle and let's introduce ourselves. Tell us your name and where you pastor. I don't know why that makes me nervous, but it makes me nervous. I even begin rehearsing in my head what I'm going to say, which is so ridiculous because I've used the same name for decades now. Why am I rehearsing this? And I've been pastor here for 15 years. And so what's there to rehearse? And yet I'm, I'm just a little anxious in that moment. I know I'm weird. And then I consequently don't really lock in anybody else's name but my own. Now, you, you extroverts can't relate to that. You wish right now we'd stand up and tell our names and where we're from right here. But I, I'm not just an introvert, a weird introvert. And you already know that. Well, well, here it's even more difficult for me when somebody says, just tell me about yourself. That's way open-ended. Like, where, where do I start with that? Could you narrow it down to my name and what I do? Well, we're coming to Peter now as he introduces himself to these hearers. Those are going to be the first recipients of this letter. And he's not going to be awkward at all. His introduction is going to be packed with meaning. And I think a very important message for us. And so we're going to take on these first four verses of 2 Peter right now. Let's go in together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Here in this introduction, see with me first, God's life-transforming grace. See with me God's life-transforming grace as Peter here sits down and he writes this letter to first century Christians. He's going to give his name. And then he's going to give two succinct words to introduce himself. First, his name. He says, I'm Simon, in this alternate spelling, Simeon. This is the name his mom and dad gave him. This is how he grew up with that name, Simon. But then he adds here, Peter. And perhaps you remember, he didn't grow up with that name. That's the name that Jesus gave him. We read about that occasion in John chapter 1, also in Matthew 16, that this is a name as, a, as an adult that Jesus says, you, Simon, you're Peter. That name means rock. When you see Cephas in the Bible, that's just the Aramaic version of the name Peter. But I love this, that Peter embraced that new name that Jesus gave him. That, yeah, I'm Simon. That's who I grew up as. But then I met Jesus, and he gave me this name Peter, and I love it. So here is introduction. I'm, I'm Simon Peter. But then he describes himself further, not just a new name, but he has a new identity, a new purpose, a new life. And so he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Catch it, servant of Jesus Christ. Apostle of Jesus Christ. And don't you love the order of that? 
He's got to talk about apostle because he's going to be confronting a lot of false teaching. And they need to know this is an authoritative word coming from one of those select few apostles. By the way, when someone calls themselves an apostle today, they can't mean authoritative apostle like this. Though some guys do it. You'll see somebody slap the title apostle on themselves. They, I hope you mean missionary. <laughs> That's the only legitimate apostle day. When we're a sent one, we go out with the gospel. You and I can be apostles in that sense. But not like this. That word apostle was attributed just to those select few. They had been with Jesus and he sent them out as authoritative apostles through whom we get our scriptures. But I love this though. Peter is an apostle. He leads off with, I'm servant first. Fundamentally, that was his understanding of himself. That word servant in the original language is doulos, sometimes translated slave. So catch that. Peter says, I am an apostle. You need to know that. What's coming is authoritative. But really, first and foremost, Oh, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. So let's pause here for a moment, I think, of critical application. And let me ask you, do you embrace that same understanding for yourself? Are you a servant of Jesus? Are you a willing servant of Jesus? And notice this, Peter, as the Spirit guided him, a lot of things could have come up here, but he embraces it. I'm Simon Peter, and I'm a servant. He's not... It's not a begrudging truth to him. He's glad that that's true. Are you the same way? Are you humbly and gladly submitted to Jesus Christ? Here's the other way to ask this. Is Jesus your Lord? You do know that somebody is master of your life. It's not possible that you have no master. So the scripture says the one who sins is a slave of sin. So if Jesus isn't your Lord, then sin is your master. And it might take different expressions. It may be that sin is your real Lord and, it, and it, what it shows up in your life is you follow the friend group. Whatever your friends want you to do, that's what you do because they really have the authority in your life. Jesus isn't Lord, they are. Or maybe it's the culture at large. Hey, the culture says this, and that's very different than what God has said, but the culture's Lord to me. I'll do whatever they say and I'll, I'll, I'll adopt whatever they say is right. But Jesus must be your Lord. You have to be like Peter here if you claim to be a Christian that this is what's true of me. So this, this is huge. Understand, this isn't some distant version of Christianity. This isn't elite Christianity when Jesus is your Lord. This is baseline. This is baby Christianity. Jesus is Savior, and he is the Lord. That means he has all authority in my life. So perhaps you're here today, and you need to wave the white flag of surrender to the Lord. Maybe you recognize you've been leading your own life in complete disobedience to basic Christianity. And today's the day, you know, Lord, I've been wrong. I don't know how I got this far from you, but I have not been following you as Lord. I wave the white flag. Or maybe you need to express it this way. You need to write yourself a pink slip and fire yourself as the leader of your life. It's a smart move because you're not a very good leader of your life. I know that because I'm not a good leader of my life. Our hearts are deceptive. Our minds can lead us astray. Certainly the culture leads us astray if we follow. And so maybe today I fire me, Lord, <laughs> that I might have you leading my life. There's no leader like you. I want you to lead. This is very basic. Remember, Jesus talked about denying yourself. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That's dying. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is basic Christianity that Jesus would be Lord of your life. Now, here's the good news. If today you discover I've been off track. I have been self-willed, self-driven. I've been doing my own thing. Listen, you can repent and recover from that. And we know it because of the one who's writing this letter. We're just talking about the life-transforming grace of God. And we see it in the life of Peter. 
It was last week when Pastor Adam preached to us from Matthew 16. Remember that occasion? He talked about the lordship of Christ in that sermon last week. And where he, remember where Adam talked about how you can get Jesus right or you can get Jesus wrong. And this very same Peter who's writing this got it right on one day. Where Jesus said, who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He understood Jesus' rightful place. But then very quickly thereafter, he begins to rebuke the Lord. You know you're off track when you're rebuking the one who's your Lord. And he was upset about Jesus dying and that whole talk. And, he, and then, remember, Jesus gave him a jarring rebuke back. Get behind me, Satan. So I want you to know, you can recover from a bad failure like that when you have it all wrong. Because here's Peter writing inspired scripture to us, who was the guy who failed so royally in Matthew 16. Can I also remind you, this same Peter is the same one who failed even worse, I think, in Matthew 26 when he denied Jesus three times after the arrest of Jesus. So that may be you today. I am so far off. I have, I've been failing in my Christian life, following everybody but Jesus. Can I bounce back from that? Oh, you can. You can run to Jesus. You can be forgiven for all that, not following him and be restored. Look at Peter. Oh, this is beautiful. And God can do that very same thing in your life. So come to Jesus today for forgiveness. Expect him to change your life. This is no small thing when you come to Jesus. Jesus called it being born again. Remember that? Paul called it being a new creation. And so expect as you follow Jesus, everything's going to change. He loves you too much to leave you like he found you. So embrace this correct understanding that Jesus must be the rightful leader of your life. So we're just talking about that God's life transforming grace that we see in Peter, but it's also offered to all of us. Secondly, see this with me, God's abundant grace. His grace is life-changing, life-transforming, but it's also abundant grace. Let's go back into our text. After introducing himself, he says this, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of the sinful desire. So you meditate on those verses and what you discover is our God has been so, so generous to us and so gracious to us. He has continued to pour out grace upon us. Notice with me that all of our being in Christ is of God's doing. It was all of God that he drew you to himself. Notice here the wording here. Peter says, you have obtained a faith. So it's true that God called you to believe in Jesus. That is the command of scripture. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. And so that is true. God expects out of you. But it's also true scripturally that that faith that you have to believe is a gift from God. He gives us the faith to believe. So you might ask the question, where did my faith come from? When so many people around me don't have faith, where did mine come from? Well, you and I didn't manufacture it. God in his kindness gave you this faith. So you obtained a faith, Peter says. You received this. Remember, God is the initiator in this amazing relationship. And of course, this defies our full understanding. That this faith that I put in Jesus on the day I was saved, this is a faith that actually was given to me by God himself. So think of it this way. God so wanted you in his family 
that he drew you to himself. This is how Jesus spoke in John 6, 44. Listen to this. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what Jesus said. Hear it again. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul spoke this way in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So your salvation, a gift of God. This saving faith is a gift of God. So we're just marveling at God's kindness, his generosity. He's done everything to draw us to himself. But how about this faith? Well, Peter describes it even further. He says, a faith of equal standing with ours. That's profound to me, because think about who's writing that. Peter, who was a close, intimate companion of Jesus, he was one of those select few apostles. And he says, you know that faith you have? It's the same as mine. You have an equal standing with us who are the apostles here. So notice that Peter's not feeling sorry for us who have come in who've come behind him. He's not like, ah, too bad you didn't get to know Jesus. Too bad you missed out on all that. You didn't get to know him really well. You, we, have, we have a different experience than you have. No, no, he said, you have equal standing with ours. So here's a reminder to us as believers. There are not rankings of Christians. So it's true there are young Christians and mature Christians. And it's true there are weak Christians that should be stronger than they are. There are weak Christians and there are strong Christians. It's true with the church, we have leaders, servant leaders, like pastors and deacons, that's true. But we all have, if our faith is in Jesus, we have an equal standing. So this is one of those things where we differ greatly with our Roman Catholic neighbors. Roman Catholics have come up with an elaborate system that you find nowhere in the scripture, that there are those who are like super duper Christians who are called saints and the rest of us aren't. Even their priests are very much set apart from everybody else. We just don't find anything like that in our New Testament. So on Friday, a number of us went down for the March for Life. One thing we greatly appreciate with our Catholic neighbors is they come in force to defend life. And so we thank God for that partnership. But on some of the banners, uh, you see some different things. First of all, I noted the priests. Those guys are decked out. They dress better than Baptist pastors, you know. They, they've got special hats and robes, you know. They make a present. Some of those guys come in, you know, I think, man, look at that. Now, not, not, not really envious of that, can't find that in the Bible either, but, but we noticed that. But then there were these banners that our Catholic friends had, and, and then some of them had something, I mean, saint this, saint that, and then one of them was, went right to this fallacy, pray for us, saint so-and-so. Then another, pray, pray for us, saint so-and-so. Where are we ever taught to pray to departed human beings, no matter how wonderful they might have been in this life? And so there's no ranking like this. Peter says, you have, you have a faith of an equal standing with ours. Furthermore, in the New Testament, we don't have priests like that. We're, we're all priests, right? We're a kingdom of priests in Christ. We get to approach God himself through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. We don't have a human being between us and God the Father. Jesus is the mediator. And so, so here we have this wonderful standing here. But how is it that we find ourselves in such a favored position with Almighty God? Well, notice it. He says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice with me, he doesn't say because of your righteousness. It's, it's the, you're, you're in Christ and you're, you're destined for heaven and you're loaded up with blessings because of the righteousness of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. So when you think about why you're here at 11 o'clock service, why you are a believer in Jesus Christ, how did that come to be? It wasn't because some time ago God looked at you in the midst of all these bad people and he saw you and thought, now there's a good one. 
I'm going to save that good one among all these bad people. Maybe, maybe in your school, man, that's, the, our advice is bad, but I'm going to save this good one. That's not, how, that's not how the gospel works. You are not good. You are not righteous. You're saved because of the righteousness and goodness and kindness of God because none of us were righteous. When I think about my story, it wasn't like God looked at Rocky Mountain, North Carolina and thought, there's a good one. I'm going after that one. It's not good. I can't get past what I was. I was far from righteous. I didn't bring any righteousness into this relationship with Jesus. I just brought sin into it. When Jesus looked at me at the time he was saving me, I was a self-absorbed teenage boy. I was sin-driven as a teenage boy. I was hell-deserving, though I did not know it at the time. And so it's totally the grace and mercy of God that he would look at me a sinner in all my unrighteousness and forgive me. And your story is exactly the same if you're in Christ. He did not find you righteous. He found you unrighteous. And because of his righteousness and goodness and grace, he came for you. Let's just remind ourselves of what we were. This is how the Bible describes all of us apart from Christ. Romans 3, 10 and following. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a pitiful and accurate description of all of us before Jesus rescued us. So you and I are not here. You and I are not in Christ because we were among the righteous on the earth. We were unrighteous. Oh, but he has drawn us to himself. He's now made us righteous through the love and mercy of God ex expressed on the cross. So here we are with no pride in ourselves. There should never be somebody strutting around this church or any other church because we understand what we were when he found us. What we are, are humble, overjoyed people. We're overjoyed that he would have such mercy on us. We're not living, feeling uh, terrible about the past. We're so grateful he's cleaned us up. We're living in the present now, aware of the past, and we are overjoyed. So as a church, you know this, we're not anti-wealthy people. We're, we're not anti-rich. Uh, if somebody is wealthy and they've worked hard or even inherited it, that's no business of ours. Good for them. And we could even pray, God, give them more. They didn't take it from me. So we're not anti-rich. But nobody likes a snob, correct? And especially obnoxious is a snobby rich kid. If you ever come upon a snobby rich kid, that kid who drives a better car than you drive, and they wear better clothes than you wear, and they take better vacations. Again, we don't begrudge them having that, but if they think they're better than you as a rich kid, you think, that's odd, because that rich kid didn't earn any of it. His mom and dad did, and so that's great. That kid, if they're thinking right, is, wow, I'm blessed to be born in this family with all this wealth and all these opportunities. This is amazing, because I could have been born in a different family, and that person should be humbled and grateful. This is how you and I ought to be. We are the rich kids. God has done all these things. He's lavished grace upon us, but it's none of our doing. And so we're just amazed at the grace of God and we're humbled by it. In fact, we have this ministry of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, offering this to everybody else in our lives. We're not better than anybody. We are just recipients of amazing grace. Chuck Lawless recently wrote this. He said, in my estimation, humility is one characteristic that marks folks who always find grace amazing. 
do you still find this grace amazing? That he would forgive you, that he would save you? Oh, humility is a mark of that. Joy is a mark of that. So we've been talking about God's life-transforming grace. We've been talking about God's abundant grace. Now I want you to see with me that we are to grow in God's grace. That's verse 2 again. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I love this. Peter, here in this context of all this grace, he said, I just want you to experience even more and more of it. May God multiply this grace in your life. So how can a person grow in this extraordinary grace that we're already experiencing? Three ways, and we'll do this quickly. First of all, grow in grace in the knowledge of God. Grow in grace in the knowledge of God. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, here it is, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. By the way, this is the very same way Peter's going to end this letter. So right here at the beginning, he talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of God. He's going to close this way in 2 Peter 3.18. So here's the end of the book. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. But knowledge is key here as we grow in grace. Not mere head knowledge. It's experiential as well. But it certainly does involve right thinking. That's why God gave us a Bible. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. With the eye that I want to grow in the Lord. I'm reading for relationship with God. So here he speaks of a knowledge of God. At the end of the book, he talks about knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So have you experienced in your life, the more knowledge you have about something, it enhances your ability to enjoy it. So the more knowledge you have of something, you have a greater capacity to enjoy it. Let me give you an example from NASCAR, of all things. So some of you know, because my middle daughter posted it on social media, that I was at a NASCAR race last Saturday. And I think, how does everybody know I was at the race? Oh, she posted. And so Lindsay and I went, and our son-in-law Evan were there, and it was just a lot, of, a lot of fun. But what's so funny about it is, in the 1980s, I once made this statement as I drove through Rockingham, North Carolina. I thought, who would ever want to go to a dumb NASCAR race? I had such disdain for NASCAR because, first of all, when, when Rockingham used to have a race, I didn't know when it was coming because I didn't care about NASCAR, and I'd be heading back to college, and I'd get stuck in an hour of what I would call stereotypical NASCAR people in traffic. I mean, pickup trucks, people yelling stuff, and I'm just stuck in traffic thinking, this is, this is ridiculous. But I find myself having a great time at a NASCAR race last Saturday, and, uh, but here's what I want to make the point. Not that you need to like NASCAR, by the way. That's not application. But a lot of knowledge happened between the 1980s and now that now has given me a greater capacity to actually enjoy this, space, this sport that I used to think was dumb. First of all, when you, when you latch on to a driver and you learn their backstory. So we pull for the number 24 car, William Byron. His car is sponsored by Liberty University. And so that's a hook for me. Like, okay, and I want to learn about how he came up through the ranks. That knowledge creates a, a different capacity to enjoy it. But it's not just that. Then you learn about the strategies. Like people often said, and I used to think, it's just cars going in circles. How can that be interesting, right? It's just a bunch of left turns. I get it. I understand that. But there's another strategy in there. And there's the power of these machines. And different tracks are different things and all that. Then, you, did you know, for about $4 a month, you get to ride along. In other words, you can hear the talk between your favorite driver and the spotter up in the stands and the pit crew chief. And you're like, I, I feel like I understand a lot. And, and the ability to enjoy it just goes up. Again, application is not that you have to like NASCAR. Just illustrating knowledge can help you appreciate something even more. So let's go to a classier example than my NASCAR one. If you're into the arts, 
and, and you want to go to the Museum of Fine Arts, I can blast through that place pretty fast. You know, I just like, you know. I think I've told you before, I'll stop sometimes at paintings and do this little gesture to make it look like I really get it. You know, I'm just like, oh, that's good. That's a horse. I see that horse. But, um, but if you're an artist and you know what goes into it, you have a capacity I don't have. Your knowledge, your experience from that, you, you just, you're like, why can't you get this? But you have knowledge. What, what I'm saying is, let's make sure we don't stay in the shallow end with our knowledge of God. We can grow in our experience of the grace of God through knowledge. We come to the word of God and Lord, I just understand the depth. I'm understanding more and more of the depth of the riches you've given me. And your amazing attributes. So we don't want to be stuck with, I just know there's a God who made us. I mean, that's a good beginning, but he's so much greater. So you might hear today thinking, I don't understand all the joy of this. Keep walking, keep reading, keep hanging with us. And you'll find there are so many reasons to be overjoyed in this God through the knowledge here. So we're growing in the grace of the knowledge of God, but also grow in the grace of God, in the power of God. That's verse three. His divine power, here it is, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is a great truth. You have everything you need, the scripture says, for life and godliness. When he talks about life here, he's talking about eternal life. And isn't your eternal life the result of the power of God? Here's Jesus who died on the cross for us. And wasn't he raised up in power through the power of the Holy Spirit? He was raised back to life. Also, that's true of you. You're you're saved person if you're in Christ because of the power of God raising you up from spiritual death into spiritual life. And so we can grow in the grace of the power of God. He has given us everything we need for life. You are set eternally if you know Jesus. But also you have everything you need for godliness. What's godliness? Well, essentially, that's just that you're walking faithfully with the Lord. God's given you everything you need to walk faithfully with Jesus in this life until the Lord calls you home. So what's he given me where I have everything I need? Well, he's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's given you the powerful word of God. He's even given you the encouraging people of God to walk alongside you. But let's just talk for a moment about how you have everything you need when you realize you are indeed a temple of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God lives in you. What could be lacking in your ability to walk faithfully in Christ when you know you have God himself living in you? So think about who is the Spirit of God? The very one you read about in the book of Genesis, they're active in creation. He lives inside of you. Or the one who indeed raised Jesus from the dead, he lives inside of you. The one who worked so powerfully at Pentecost, saving 3,000 people in one day, he lives inside of you. The one who inspired the 66 books of your Bible, he lives in you. He raised you up to life and he's not finished working in you. He is sanctifying you. You have everything you need for eternal life and for godliness. And so we praise God for that. Years ago, I took a youth group to look up Lodge in South Carolina. I still remember one of the speakers and he shared about how this spirit-filled life works. And I remember him putting a work glove up on the podium. And I've shared this with you before, but I love the illustration. He says a work glove can't work when it's by itself. It just sits there with a name work glove. It can't do anything until it's filled with a hand. And then it becomes something that actually works. And he made a great analogy. That's how we are. We can't do anything on our own, but filled with God, then we become different. We're changed. We have power that we didn't otherwise have. And this is the role of the spirit of God in our lives. So we're talking about growing in the knowledge of God. We're talking about growing in grace in the power of God. But how about this real quickly? Growing in grace in the promises of God. And that's verse four. 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And so there are promises that you and I cling to that help us move forward in the grace of God. First of all, the promises that pertain to Jesus coming. The old covenant prophets told us that one was going to come who would be pierced through, who would be killed for our transgressions, one who would make us clean. And oh, that's a precious promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But then Jesus in his incarnation, he made promises to us and all oh, we we make progress in the Lord because of these, that promise we just talked about. Jesus promised that we would have the Holy Spirit and that he would indwell us and he would remind us of everything that he taught. Another promise Jesus gave is of his return, that the world won't always be like this, that Jesus will turn the world right side up when he comes again. That is a precious, very great promise. And this promise that we have a home in heaven, that he's gone to prepare a place for us. If you know Jesus, that's a promise he has made to you. And so these great and precious promises, they sustain us, don't they? They inspire us. They help us to withstand the corrupting influences of the world around us. So you and I can grow in the grace of God through our knowledge of God that's increasing. And through the power of God still active in our lives. And through the promises of God. And so here's our invitation. Today, would you come to Jesus? And if you've already met Jesus, would you continue to walk? with Jesus? Would you grow in the grace of God? Here's how he concludes this section. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. You and I were born with a sin nature, but in coming to Christ and experiencing his grace, we get a new nature. We get the very nature of God. We don't become God, but we become his children. And he makes all things new in us. Would you come to him today and would you walk with him? He'll give you eternal life if you come to Jesus. He'll give you new power, new joy, new purpose, a new beginning, even a new you. It's a life transforming grace that he offers to you in his son, Jesus. Let's pray together.